Good morning, good morning, sweet, beautiful Texas and beyond. A little Tom Petty kicking things off for us here on the Lone Star Outdoors Show. Uh, one of the, the sounds of my youth, <laughs> Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Sad to hear about his sudden passing this week. Uh, truly one of our most iconic rock and rollers. And uh, <laughs> I can't tell you how many times I listened to his greatest hits in high school. So rest in peace, Tom Petty. Uh, his music obviously will still live on. There's no doubt about that. I'm Cable Smith, by the way, and this is the Lone Star Outdoors show powered by Dallas Safari Club. Uh, thanks to our presenting sponsors, Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Players. And thanks to you guys and gals for being here today. It is a treat to be talking, hunting, fishing, the great outdoors, and all that implies with you each and every week. Uh, and man, we've got a great show lined up for you today. It's, it's an amazing time of year, isn't it? The leaves are starting to change colors. Uh, I was just up in New Mexico mule deer hunting last week. The aspens were turning yellow. Absolutely beautiful. And hey, that's what we're going to get into first today is, uh, I'll recap that backcountry experience because it was a hell of a ride, uh, wide out at 11,500 feet forced us off the mountain three days earlier than expected. And I'll tell you this, I have never been that cold in my life as far as my fingers literally would not function. Had to get into my uh, sleeping bag just to try to get them warmed up. Uh, one of my buddies was in a similar situation with his feet. So there was uh, some discomfort, but I'll tell you what gear I took. Uh, whether I could have weathered the storm, so to speak, if I really wanted to, we had a couple uh, older fellows with us that were in their, well, approaching their 70s. That weighed heavily on uh, the three younger guys and the decision to cancel the trip for 12 other folks who were supposed to head up the mountain the next day. Uh, so a lot of moving parts on this thing. And at the end of the day, we might still have been able to take a mule deer. So we'll talk all about that. Uh, crazy 48 hours in the New Mexico backcountry, all on public land. Then, speaking of public land, we'll be joined by Backcountry Hunters and Anglers CEO and President Lantani. Uh, we'll figure out how exactly the Trump administration, and more specifically uh, Secretary of the Interior Ryan Zinke, how has he represented the interest of sportsmen and women so far in his appointment by President Trump. Of course, protecting our public lands is a big part of that, and he's been under uh, scrutiny recently due to the review of our public, you know, some public monuments and the uh, surrounding public land associated with those national treasures. Uh, so we'll get Land's take on that. Also, a directive that came out uh, two weeks ago I got a press release from Secretary Zinke's office claiming that uh, they were going to start trying to provide more access to public lands uh, for hunters and anglers. And so uh, we'll get Land's opinion on that. You know, is it all just fluff or is there some weight behind it? Uh, and then here's the cool thing. 
We're going to talk to Land, and, and then we're going to flip it over and talk to Secretary Zinke himself. And we'll let him, uh, you know, have the opportunity to defend himself, number one, and then number two, uh, talk about himself as a sportsman. He, he grew up in Montana, and hunting and fishing have been a big part of his life. So I want to trust this guy. I want to believe that he has our best interests at heart. But at the end of the day, politics are politics, and we all know how that goes. So I think we'll uh, we'll be able to get a better read on Secretary Zinke, hopefully after this morning's conversation. Um, so that's what's on the docket for today. Should be a, a very interesting show. There's no doubt about that. A couple other things to mention. I've got uh, the October Photo of the Month contest rocking and rolling. We're giving away a $300. That's the value of the all-seasons road feeder in game guard camo. You can attach it to your hitch or your bumper. And, uh, yeah, it's perfect for corning those senderos. Uh, you can put it on your truck or you can attach it to your ATV or four-wheeler, whatever the case. It's the all-seasons feeders road feeder. And all you have to do to enter this month's contest is send in your best hunting or fishing photo to Lone Star Outdoor Show at gmail.com. Better yet, post it on our Facebook page wall or uh, tag us with LSOS Photo Contest on Instagram, and we'll get you entered into the monthly fan vote. And then, of course, at the end of the year, we'll have our grand prize photo contest. One of y'all will join me on a trophy axis deer or black buck hunt down at Coons Canyon Ranch in Rock Springs, Texas. So another great grand prize hunt package brought to you by Coons Canyon Ranch. Um, okay, let's do uh, let's do a quick giveaway here. I've got y'all have been hearing me talk about and using my scent blaster in the whitetail woods. Uh, it's great for hogs as well. You simply fill up your favorite attractant in the little uh, two ounce reservoir, and you let it rip. This thing will bring in bucks, does, hogs, coyotes, based on what attractant you use. But it's highly effective. Uh, retails for thirty bucks. Comes with a six pack of wicks. Our signature scent blaster wicks, I say are. I'm just a spokesman, but uh, I absolutely love the product. So to win your own scent blaster, uh, text in the word HUNT. That's HUNT to 214-289-7807, and you can win your own scent blaster. And for anyone else that wants to check it out, you can find it at scentblaster.net. Truly a product I think every hunter will want in their hunting pack this fall. Let's take a break. Up next, we'll grab our muzzleloaders and hit the New Mexico backcountry. I'll tell you all about my experience last week, a whirlwind 48 hours on the mountain. I won't ever forget. It's coming at you next right here on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. And I'll keep this world from dragging me down. Gonna stand my ground. And I won't back down. Hey y'all, Cable here for Three Curl Outfitters, and whether you want to bow hunt hogs or get after them with thermal imaging and night vision, under the cover of darkness, Three Curl has you covered. They've got the latest and greatest thermal imaging and night vision technology. They hunt unlimited, I mean just thousands upon thousands of acres of ag fields, or if you're a bow hunter and you want to sit in a stand and wait for the hog to come to you, uh, they can do that as well. Check it out, threecurl.com to book your next hog hunt. Hi, I'm Craig Boddington. I'd like to invite you to become a member of Dallas Safari Club, one of the world's leading hunting and conservation organizations. As a member, you'll receive Game Trails Magazine, a monthly newsletter, 
and invitations to our monthly meetings and special activities. Join Dallas Safari Club, an international organization based in Dallas, supporting hunting and conservation worldwide. For more information, call 800-9-GO-HUNT or visit our website at www.biggame.org. Howdy folks, I'm Lee Hoffbear for Hoffbear's Outdoor Superstore in Gulfway, Texas. I hope you're enjoying the Lone Star Outdoor Show. We've been a title sponsor for a number of years now, and we're proud to be a part of it. I'd also like to thank you for making Hoffbear's once again the number one Polaris dealer in Texas. Please keep buying your Polaris products from us. Send us your friends, your neighbors, all your hunting buddies, and I promise we'll keep giving the best deals on a brand new Polaris in all of Texas. Whether you're looking for a Polaris for work or play, whether you need a regular Ranger or maybe a Ranger Crew, an RZR, they've got an all-new Ace that you need to come test drive. We've also got four-wheelers from a youth model all the way up to the all-new Sportsman 1000. For your Polaris headquarters, Hoff Powers Outdoor Superstore in Gulfway, Texas is who you need to see all or get on the web and contact today. You can check us out at hpolaris.com. That's H's in Hoff Power, polaris.com. Or you can come see us at Highway 84 West in Gulfway, Texas. And folks, Hoff Powers has been in Central Texas for over 50 years now, and we couldn't have stuck around this long if we were steering you wrong. Hey y'all, Cable here for my good friends over at Outlaw Outfitters. This veteran-owned and operated outfit will put you on the ducks, to say the least. I've been hunting with them for, gosh, four or five years now. They also do uh, deer, hog, and turkey as well. They have over 15,000 acres they hunt in Collin, Grayson, and Fannin counties. Whether you want to do a turnkey, you know, one morning waterfowl hunt, or a complete weekend package with authentic Cajun cooking and lodging, it's all right there within an hour of the Metroplex, and you can find them at huntoutlaw.com. Hi, this is Fred Eichler with Easton Bowhunting and Predator Nation. Thanks for listening to the Lone Star Outdoor Show. September in the Rockies, the bull elk bugles ring. Their sounds fill the canyons just like they're trying to sing. Fall winds blow in winter and the snow's falling deep. It's time. Cable Smith welcoming everybody back to DSC's Lone Star Outdoor Show powered by Lone Star Beer and Hoff, Power Polaris. One of my favorites there from Dave Watson, Ridgefire, bringing us back here uh, as I've got an exciting story to share with y'all. Just got back from an epic <laughs> abbreviated hunt in the New Mexico backcountry uh, for that elusive gray ghost. Yep, I'm talking about mule deer, an animal that I have a lot of history with, most of it uh, bad history, really. It, well, not bad can't ever say a hunt, whether it's successful or not, was a, was a bad experience, right? But time after time, they kick my rear end. But uh, maybe there was a happy ending this time. We'll get into it here in just a second. But first, this segment brought to you by the Drive Over Chalk. If you're hauling an ATV, Jeep, four-wheeler, um, what else, golf cart, basically anything that you're going to haul on a flatbed trailer, just drive over the Drive Over Chalk and dock it right there. You install it on your flatbed, screw it in. It's that easy, and you'll save, well, basically 50 bucks. You'll get free shipping if you use the promo code Lone Star or Cable, and you can dock it with the Drive Over Chalk by going to driveoverchalk.com. All right, uh, well, let's dive into this mule deer hunt. Uh, New Mexico and basically our public land has been a big part of my life for, I think, the first time I went backpacking with my dad and his buddies. Um, was when I was 20 years old, so about 17 years now, I would say. And this is a backpacking trip that was founded at the church I grew up in. 
and I started going when I was 21. I was the first of uh, their kids, uh, all the guys that would go on this trip, to be able to tag along. And I realized very quickly <laughs> that in addition to the fishing and hiking, there was also grouse hunting available. Uh, and then uh, later on, started putting in for big game tags, elk, mule deer, uh, bighorn sheep, although I haven't drawn the bighorn sheep. That would be like winning the lottery. But uh, I've drawn mule deer twice in New Mexico. Uh, I've also done over-the-counter stuff in Colorado and then have drawn elk twice uh, back in New Mexico as well. And I'm very familiar with the area that we ended up choosing for this hunt. And so uh, I was feeling pretty good going into it. I, I had a muzzleloader mule deer tag. And we would be camping at 11,500 feet. That's where base camp was. Five of us went up early. Uh, this was a 17-man trip. <laughs> Three of us had mule deer tags. The rest would just, you know, be hanging around uh, around the lake and enjoying fishing and, and hiking, maybe a little grouse hunting. But three of us were seriously going to be uh, mule deer hunting. And so it's supposed to be a five-day hunt. We get up there on Wednesday, and it is pretty much a whiteout <laughs> at that elevation, which is kind of crazy for late September. Um, but you never know what's going to happen in the mountains. And so uh, we hike in seven and a half miles, meet the other guys at camp, the couple of them, older guys uh, approaching their 70s, Mr. Morgan and Mr. Prater, they had ridden horses up uh, and so luckily they had a tent already put up for my friend Luke and I uh, because we got up there and it was miserable. I, my my hands had never been that cold in my entire life. I really was having a problem doing simple things like uh, unzipping my sleeping bag which was the, all I wanted to do was just get in my sleeping bag. That's how cold it was. Our boots, yeah, you can get Gore-Tex waterproof this, that, and the other. doesn't matter when you're walking seven and a half miles and the first four miles is in the rain. The last three and a half is in four to six inches of snow. You're going to get wet. Your boots are not going to be able to resist that much moisture. It's uh, Anybody that does hardcore backpacking can tell you the same thing. If they've been in bad weather, your feet are going to get wet. Your gear is Gore-Texed out as you're going to be. You're still going to get wet. And a lot of that actually comes internally if you're sweating and you've got, say, a waterproof jacket on, well, that sweat is going to be trapped on the inside just like it's going to be dispelling the water on the outside. So that actually is what uh, caused me to be pretty cold um, on the walk-in. But, you know, fast forward a little bit. I got up, ate some ramen, got warm, spent the next 16 hours in our sleeping bags because it was either raining, sleeting, or snowing uh, relentlessly. Finally, uh, the weather broke. Oh, but let me back up because this is important. Uh, Wednesday night, we had to call the other 12 guys who were either flying out of the Dallas area or driving up themselves to hike in on Thursday morning. We had to call them and tell them, and, and this is my dad, by the way, and two of my brothers, uh, lifelong friends, my dad's friends as well. We had to tell those 12 guys, look, I know you bought your plane ticket, and there's just uh, really not a situation you want to hike into. Trail was pretty treacherous, uh, you know, for folks up there in age. Um, not a good deal. And some of the other guys, really not that hardcore backpackers. Some of them, it was their first trip ever. And that's not the kind of uh, indoctrination you want to have into the backcountry, a negative impression. So we made the tough call, said, hey, uh, y'all don't come. It's not worth it. It's dangerous. 
and it's miserable. And we decided that we would leave as soon as the horses could come and pack the other guys out. So basically, four hours after I hike to the seven and a half miles to 11,500 feet, we're on a satellite phone saying, hey, y'all don't come. And by the way, call the Wrangler to come get these other guys off the mountain, and we're going to hike out as soon as we possibly can. And that ended up being Friday. So we're, we hiked in Wednesday night. They said, the the Wrangler said, we can come back Friday. That's the earliest we can come get you guys and all the gear and get you the hell out of there. But keep in mind, you know, food enough for 17 guys for five days. So there was plenty of gear. We ended up giving the birds most of that food. Uh, but, you know, packs, tents, all that stuff, uh, way more than five dudes could carry out. So that was the uh that was the hunt and i was thinking god this sucks you know i've got i've got gear where you know it's miserable but uh, i'd struggle through it we drove 12 hours to the trailhead from dallas so uh but it was a you know what's best for the group is sometimes the best call and, and that's what we did so the weather broke uh, i think we got out of our tents about 11 or 12 on thursday morning uh, we had enough fuel <laughs> propane <laughs> To actually douse enough just completely saturated wood to get a fire going. Thanks to our, uh, David Morgan for that. Had a nice breakfast in uh, the snow there. And then David and I said, screw this, we're going hunting. And so we each set off on our uh, on our own ways. And it was a little tricky. You know, the trails are all covered in snow. So I knew I'd be walking back in the dark that night. So I was a little paranoid about that. But GPS also aids in that and i've got a physical map so i head down about three four miles to an area where i killed an elk in 2015 with a bow and i'd seen mule deer in these meadows before and um found four does that afternoon so i dropped about 1500 feet in elevation probably from 11.5 to to 10,000. no rain no sleet i would get back to camp that night and find out they had a two-hour sleet storm at 11.5, so completely different climates, even at just that little bit of a lower elevation. And here's the cool thing. So I found these four does. I gave a little serenade to one. She let me get, oh, man, 10 feet from her. Didn't have a care in the world. Trying to get her to tell me where her boyfriend was, but she, uh, anyway, she didn't play ball. Never saw a buck, and I'm walking out. When I say walking out, I'm walking uphill three miles. Uh, but... Uh, I'm walking out and in the same place where I always see elk, where David killed his elk three years ago, where I killed mine two years ago. Here they go. Massive six by six. He's got 15 cows with him and he's working his way down this meadow system. And literally I get the phone scope out, start videoing and he gets within 40 yards of me. Doesn't have a clue I'm there. It was surreal. It was awesome. Made the trip worth it, even if I wasn't going to get a mule deer. Uh, so I hung out with them until dark, made my way back to camp. We ate dinner. Uh, rained again all night. <laughs> that night, miserable once again. Cold and wet. So the next morning we got up uh, relatively late because the horses weren't going to be there till noon uh, and decided to uh, you know, hit the trail, a seven-and-a-half-mile hike out. And there was this one meadow that I had told Luke, and David, hey, you know, there's a lot of mule deer tracks in this meadow. Beautiful meadow. Uh, it's got, you know, aspens all around the edge and then dark timber, which the mule deer absolutely love to feed in those aspens and then feel that security blanket of having that dark timber around them. And I said to them, I said, 
we're going to find a mule deer. It's going to be in there. So that was five miles down the mountain. And the fat lady was putting on her dress. She was walking up to the mic stand when Luke and I spotted two mule deer bucks in this uh, meadow five miles down the hill from base camp. And so, uh, you know, that's another thing about black powder hunting in the monsoon. you got to keep your powder dry. So uh, one little tip is put a, a piece of electrical tape or, a, you know, a water balloon would work just as easy. But put that over the end of your barrel to keep your powder dry. That's what I did. And, and thank God <laughs> because I was able to see these mule deer, you know, 500, 600 yards, play the wind, use a uh, just a little finger of woods to work close enough to get to within about 200 yards. And from there, I belly crawled <laughs> to within 60 yards, popped up, boom. And I was worried. I was like, I wonder if this gun's even going to go off. It's been rained on now for you know basically 48 hours. No, went off without a hitch. CVA Optima V2. I see the mule deer run off, and I start sprinting after it, not to bump it, just to see where he's going to go into the woods. I mean, this is a big freaking mountain. He could disappear and go anywhere. Uh, so I get my binos on him, and I see him start to teeter and fall over. My buddy Luke is videoing with my cell phone the whole time, so it's a, it's pretty rough <laughs> rough uh, footage, but I think he captured the essence of the moment perfectly. Um, you could see me fist pumping, got my emotional reaction when he walks up to me, uh, and then got me approaching the mule deer, and, and that's when it was time to give thanks. And it worked out. <laughs> it was pretty amazing that it did because it was the up until that point the, the most abbreviated, I would say certainly most uncomfortable hunt that I had ever been on. And, uh, you know, it worked out at the witching hour. And so here's the other cool thing. 20 minutes later after I shot the buck, here come my friends, Mr. Morgan, Mr. Prater. I still call him Mr. These are my friends' dads that uh, I grew up with. I can't believe I'm 36, which puts them dang near 70. And uh, they're riding the horses, and, and so we flag them down, and we're able to get some of the meat on the horses, a little help field dressing it, getting it quartered up and into game bags. Made short work of it. 30 minutes, boom, bam. Havilons come out, and we rock and roll. Get that thing on the horses and in the packs. And we've got only a two-hour hike from there, two more miles down the hill. And that was all she wrote. It was uh, an incredible experience, one that started off so poorly. That's the wonderful thing about hunting, y'all, is you just you never know what's going to happen. You never know what you're going to see, and it's never over until it's over. So uh, I guess the message there is sometimes you just got to overcome all odds and stay positive. And for me, it was seeing that bull elk with his cows, seeing him bugle, hurting him. That's what I took solace in, saying, you know what, we're probably not going to get a mule deer here this trip. I think I'd even recorded a video saying, well, it didn't work out this time. Hey, <laughs> it, it did work out. So thank God uh, for that blessing. Thank God for good friends and for a safe trip, even though the elements uh, were stacked against us. Uh, so public land. It means a hell of a lot to me. Uh, every fall, I go to a, a national forest where I've either bought over the counter tag or drawn a tag. Sometimes go more than once. And the, the public land hunting beats you down, especially in the mountains. Physically and emotionally, it is draining. 
is so draining. But there has never been a time when I've gone into the mountains and not come out with my soul revitalized and refreshed to take on life's next challenge. So if you haven't public land hunted or you haven't made it into the backcountry, hell, maybe you don't even have a tag. Just take a fly rod. Just go experience the mountains. It's, I think, uh, God's one of his most beautiful creations. There's no doubt about that. Um, okay, enough about that experience. I hope uh, I didn't chew y'all's ear off, but something I definitely wanted to share. Uh, up next, we'll be joined by Land Tawny. He is the CEO and uh, president of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. And we've got some pressing stuff to get into regarding the Secretary of the Interior of the United States, Ryan Zinke. Is he really in our corner? Mm, maybe so, maybe not. We'll get Backcountry Hunters and Anglers take next, right here on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. I was just 17 when the highway called. Mama said, boy, don't send me no tears back to Wichita Falls. Cable Smith here for Deerview Windows. As a whitetail hunter, nothing is more frustrating than poor visibility in a deer blind. It can flat ruin a hunt. At Deerview Window Company, they manufacture windows solely for the use in deer stand and deer blinds. All of their windows and doors can be custom made to fit your specific openings. Or you can select from standard sizes, from hinged windows to sliding windows and everything in between. Visit DeerviewWindows.com to determine which style window is best for your deer blind. Plus, you'll get a free quote. Deerview Windows, where visibility matters. Howdy friends, Cable Smith here, and many of you have seen my pictures throughout the last hunting season of my custom 7 mag. That rifle was built by Horizon Firearms. Horizon Firearms is a custom rifle builder here in Texas, located in College Station, and they specialize in extremely accurate custom rifles designed exactly the way you want them. Give them a call at 979-229-4664 or check them out at horizonfirearms.com. This is Randy Newberg with Federal Premium's Fresh Tracks with Randy Newberg. Thanks for listening to the Lone Outdoor TV show. <laughs> Radio show. Yeah, just the Lone Star Outdoor show. Randy Newberg here with Federal Premium's Fresh Tracks with Randy Newberg. Thanks for listening to the Lone Star Outdoor show. She's putting on the red dress. That's the music of the Vandaliers, the Red Dress, bringing us back here on the Lone Star Outdoor Show, powered by Dallas Safari Club. Cable Smith, riding shotgun with you. Thank you so much for sharing a part of your week with me. Uh, thanks to our presenting sponsors as well, Lone Star Beer and our friends over at Hoff Power Polaris. Uh, we are all set to talk some public lands. Um, I just told y'all all about my experience, my most recent uh, experience. In the previous segment, uh, hunting New Mexico mule deer, public lands have been a big part of my life uh, for, gosh, 16, 17 years now. And there are folks out there who want to take those public lands away from us, sell them off to the private sector, let them be fracked, mined, drilled. And that, my friends, cannot be allowed to happen. So before we jump into that discussion with Land, Tawny, of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. This segment of the show is proudly brought to you by Horizon Firearms. Y'all have seen my custom 7 mag. Yep, took it to Africa, uh, shot an elk with it already this year. And, I mean, it's got quite a few notches on its belt. And for good reason, it's a tack driver. It was custom made right there in College Station, Texas. 
No matter what caliber you are looking for, Horizon Firearms will customize your rifle to your specs and the caliber that you want. Truly is a dream rifle, and you can find them at HorizonFirearms.com. All right, uh, let's go ahead and bring on our old buddy, Land Tawny of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. Land, thanks for being here, man. Great to be on the phone again. I'm a little jealous of the Pecos, dude. <laughs> Regardless of whether you shoot some or not, you're going into you know some good, clean fun at a high elevation. So I don't know. I kind of uh, I'm a homebody. I've been backpacking that uh, area for oh gosh over ten years. Mm-hmm. So I always just put in for archery elk one, and then just kind of go from there. Just so I always tr- I try to stay in the same unit because I know it very well. And uh, this time I drew mule deer, so muzzleloader. So. We shall see what happens, but <clears throat> good, clean, fun. At least got the chance, right? You got the, at least got the chance, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, well, so how has your fall been so far? You know, uh, it's it's <laughs> it's been all right. You know, I've uh, I've been traveling a ton. You know, backcountry hunters and anglers is kind of just blowing up, and um, and so I've been traveling a ton. I did have a young black lab who's actually in my office right now and she's nine months old and I got her out a couple of weeks ago chasing grouse around and my six-year-old son came with us and uh, awesome. we had uh yeah it was, it was great you know we actually got into some grouse um and I like to tell people I kind of set both my dog and my son up for a life of disappointment with their data field um <laughs> I I shot four times at four grouse and missed all four so it uh, <laughs> looks like dad what's going on but uh we got out there. She's super birdie. Um, she's not scared of guns, and so that's great. Uh, I think I'm really trying to get her in, in front of uh, as many birds as possible. Um, and so that's my goal for the fall. But, like, I just went down to Louisiana this last week, and we're looking into some access issues down there. There's some really questionable things happening on water that's been traditionally open to hunters and anglers. And so we went down to check that out and hmm. uh, on Friday – um, got out in the morning and hunted some ducks and uh, some blue wings and uh, wasn't crazy hunting, but we killed some ducks, which was great. Yeah. And got some blood on the fingers. And then that afternoon, um, killed my first alligator ever. And that was, I, I haven't, like, after I killed that alligator, I like shook for an hour and that hasn't happened to me since I killed my first buck. And so like, <laughs> and I've been excited about things, but man, that was an intense moment and, um, you know, I can't wait to eat it, but it was, uh, oh, it's kind of a, yeah. a new experience for me. You, so you've eaten alligator? Oh yeah. I've killed a couple of them. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Down so on the Texas the coast. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's, uh, it's pretty intense right at that moment. And then it's kind of over and hook and line uh, or how were you guys hunting them? We, we've set up cane poles the night before uh-huh. like with, uh, like the chicken hanging with them a hook and, oh yeah. Um, came up and, you know, rancid pulled it up chicken. to the boat. <laughs> What's that? Yeah, rancid chicken. It's not yeah. good chicken. Uh, yeah. And uh, pulled it up to the boat. And, you know, once he got to the boat, he started thrashing around and his head and hissing and hitting the boat with his tail. And, you know, that's kind of was the intense moment. And then I shot him with a 223 and it was over. And mm-hmm. um, But again, like I just, like my, you know, and I wasn't like, like totally physically shaking, but, you know, like just like, it was an intense moment, man. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, it was cool. And, um, 
can't wait to get them back home and eat them. And so we'll, uh, you know, I'm, I'm uh, planning on introducing that to my kids, which I think will be fun. Oh, sure, sure. Yeah. I, so did you like get a skull mount done or what, what are you going to do with that? Yeah, we uh, cut off the head and um, there's an old Cajun down there. He's going to take it to his place and we've got an ant pile and have them clean it up first and then bleach it out. Um, so we'll get that. And then I don't, I'm really after the meat after that. And I will see, you know, how expensive, like, you know, to do the hide is, you know, they're like to all in one or oh, probably like 500 bucks uh, coming from. You experience. think so? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, you know, you know, Oh yeah. And yeah. what did you put that up on the wall or would you? Well, do? it's so right now it's draped over the back of a chair in the studio, but eventually I'm going to wear it on my feet. I'm going to have some cowboy boots made out of it. So. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah, you know, what I was amazed at is how soft they are. Oh, my gosh, yeah. You know, it, it's like, you know, and then how tough they are. Like, the, you know, like, you know, just cutting the head off. Or I guess putting the, even, like, the tags of the tail, like, was a chore. You oh, know? Yeah. And, like, you feel how soft it is. And you're like, oh, that's going to be super easy. And it's like, it's not, you know. It's like really, I don't know, I guess really strong leather maybe is the way to compare it. Like, soft, soft supple leather that's, you know, like, soft to the touch but hard to cut through. Just wait um, till you get it but, tanned. It's going to be even softer. It's uh really yeah it feels really? very nice. Let me ask you this: Did they uh, give you the honor of uh, sexing your alligator? Because that's what they did to me as my, on my first one. I was like, ah, after no, the first one. No, is this like a said, joke or something, or like? Yeah, you got to stick your dude. finger up in there and and feel around for a little alligator. <laughs> I wiener. definitely saw that. I definitely saw that hole, but um, I did not. I did not, and I, you know, my they let you off are, easy. Oh, <laughs> the Cajuns that I went with, I know pretty well. I think I would have sniffed that one out. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, that's cool. That's cool. Um, and yeah, you, you said uh, you took your son grouse hunting, and I kind of had the, a similar experience. I took my, I have a four-year-old son and then twin girls that are two, and I, my wife had a work opening day of dove season, and I took the kids out of school and said, you know, this is what we do on on opening day. And right. I'm looking at my pile of shells versus my pile of dove, <laughs> and I think I'd shot like three and a half boxes of shells, and I had like seven dove. So it was, uh, <laughs> I'd shoot, and they'd be like, did you get him? And I'd be like, uh, I, I didn't shoot. That was someone else. So. <laughs> so it happened. That's awesome. Well, I'm glad that we're uh, in this thing together. Oh, yeah. And, you yeah. know, I mean, it's like half of that battle is just getting them out there, and that's what you did. And, you know, and I think that, you know, just let them have those experiences at a young age. I mean, they're going to, you know, I think they idolize us anyways as fathers, but, yeah. you know, that's going to be something they never forget. And hopefully it's something that, you know, they carry throughout their, their lives. Yeah. And then I've got uh chocolate lab. She's seven. And so okay. she at least got to go pick up some birds. And for, I think for the kids, that was the coolest thing for them to, to see. Oh, yeah. And then my four-year-old, he helped me clean them all. We took the hearts out. You know, I had a special little recipe for the hearts and he's, he's in there digging around looking for dove hearts. So that was, that was my proud moment as the dad, you know, <laughs> How big is a dove heart? Uh, it is about the size of a big, like a kidney bean, like <laughs> not very big. <laughs> not very big. Yeah. So any kind of recipe, you gotta be killing a lot of doves, like oh yeah. Little, yeah. yeah. But they're tasty, that's for sure. Um, that's cool. Well, I hey, think it's good that you're getting having them get their uh, hands dirty too, man. Uh, like, he, that's he, like, he ate it up. So being part just, of it. Yeah. 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 Um. Well, what I want to talk about specifically today, uh, just kind of shifting gears here, on a serious note is I got this uh, email from a press release from the uh, Secretary of the Interior's office, and it was referring to essentially the gist of it was increased uh, public land access for, you know, backcountry hunters and anglers, 
on BLM, you know, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service lands and, and MPS lands. So I'm sure you saw the email as well, saw the press release, wondering, yep. you know, w- what this means exactly or if it's just a bunch of fluff coming out of Secretary uh, Zinke's office. Yeah, no, I'm glad that I have the question. So I think the first thing um, that I would say is that, you know, the number one thing that hunters and anglers keep bringing up is like the issue is access. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in this country, as you know, more and more private land is developed, that puts more and more pressure on on public access to public lands and waters, but also, you know, these places that, you know, were traditionally open for hunting and fishing on private lands, like a lot of that's going away. And so, you know, it's the number one issue that you hear is access, access, access. And, you know, some of that can be, you know, you got some public land that's inaccessible because it's donutted, you know, by a bunch of private land, mm-hmm. or it's in a checkerboard situation where, you know, you can't walk from public to public because you're, you know, violating kind of private land airspace. And so there's many ways to think about that access piece, but it continues to be the number one kind of uh, thing that folks bring up. Yeah. And, and to me, um, you know, like the secretary, his first day on the job, he, he did a secretary order and you know, talked about access and wanting to increase access. And at that point, you know, that was really a feel-good measure. And I think what we're what we see with this um, new kind of secretary order that just came out a couple of weeks ago is that like he's taking the next step, and so you know he's under this review over the next 120 days and trying to figure out like like what access really means, and so how we do increase that in a more um, I guess concrete way. And so you know I hope you know my heart of hearts is that we'll see some things come out of there that uh, you know that we want. Um, I think you know, quite honestly, that some of that might be a little fluff just because that is the number one issue that we all care about and kind of pandering a little bit. But, you know, let's take it as face value. And, and you know, I think, you know, I've already mentioned kind of some of those inaccessible uh, places. You know, let's look at like the Sabinosa Wilderness, which he is looking at, which is 16,000 acres. Um, it's the only wilderness that's inaccessible. Uh, there's a, or inaccessible. There's a private landowner uh, that is willing to gift 4,000 acres that will not only um, provide access but also be 4,000 acres addition to that wilderness. And so he's got something in front of him right now that he can do in the next 120 days that would go along with the secretary order. And we have, you know, all the hope in the world that he will actually do that. Um, we were able to actually do a site visit with him down there. And I think that really opened his eyes. That's what the potential was there. Hmm. So that's an easy win for him. I think, you know, he, a couple of weeks ago, uh, before this came out, he talked about increasing access on 10 national wildlife refuges, something the previous secretaries have kind of been doing, Secretary Jules, Secretary Salazar, which is, you know, existing national wildlife refuges, just making sure you have access to them. Um, that should happen hopefully here in the next 120 days as well. And so then after that, what is that? And, you know, I think, you know, you're going on this big backpack trip into the Pecos and, and you know, access doesn't necessarily mean, uh, you know, uh, motorized access. You know, it can be, it's, it can be on your own two feet. It can be on, you know, four, which is a horse or llamas. And, and so I think a lot of this is, is, is what's more for me at Backcountry Hunters and Anglers is access to mm-hmm. these public lands versus access through. And, you know, some of the well, things you could do. I'm, and, I'm in favor of but, that, just to, just to hit on that. Yeah. I mean, when I go on the, you know, whether it's the Pecos or the Carson National Forest, I go somewhere in New Mexico every year, whether I have a tag for big game or just going grouse hunting and fly fishing if I don't draw. 
And uh, I don't want access through those places, you know. I don't want four-wheelers. I don't want that stuff. If you want to go in on a horse, that's great. I've, I've done it plenty right. of times. Uh, but, you know, uh, access to is what's most important to me, and I imagine you as well. It is, and, you know, and I think that is also the beauty, you know, of our of our public lands. They're, they're for multiple use, you know. And so there's a lot of places right now, you know, that you can uh, – um, you can, you know, drive around on and then the places, you know, that you and I are describing that we covet, you know, there's, there's less and less of those, like we're not making any more of those. Yeah. And so those places become that much more special. And so I think one of the things that I would like to see that comes out of this is, you know, that one of the recommendations that they have in this budgetary process, there'd be two of them. The first one would be like adequate funding for, you know, our fishing game agencies and our, or I guess our resource management agencies like the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and the Bureau of Land Management, which he oversees. Mm-hmm. And to make sure they have adequate funding and that adequate funding, you know, can be in some of these places where roads have been shut down, not for habitat security, but strictly for, you know, uh, road maintenance. You know, the roads just haven't, they don't have the money to keep these roads maintained and that's why they've had to shut them down. So like that, that could be a place where, and you talk about more robust funding for these agencies so you can address some of those issues. Mm-hmm. Um, another one would be, you know, the support, full funding of the Land and Water Conservation Fund. Land and Water Conservation Fund is like the the least known, like, number one access tool in this country that basically uses money from offshore oil in the Gulf and then puts that to use stateside for um, uh, really for uh, uh, access and for, like, habitat improvement. And you know, that's been woefully underfunded in the president's budget that came out in this last spring. Um, you know, it was it was drastically cut. And so, you know, through this process, the next 120 days, I would like to see one of the recommendations be, you know, full funding and permit reauthorization of that fund. I think that'd be a very positive thing. Um, so I think there's, you know, lots of opportunities in front of them. And, and, and hopefully they, uh, uh, you know, that this 120 days like leads to some really positive things and not fluff. Um, one of my concerns really is that there's so much other stuff that's going on, you know, whether that's the national monument review, um, that, you know, really starts to attack some of these places that you and I covet that are these kind of best of the best and, um, really have all sorts of different types of access in them, but, you know, could be, Really hurt through wildlife habitat more than anything as you open them up to kind of unfettered oil and gas development, coal, and uh, hard rock minerals. And so where does that review go? Yeah, and Land, I really want to talk about the status of that review and then also the uh, the leaked report that came out of the secretary's office uh, last week. So certainly enjoying the conversation here. Uh, are you cool to stick around for a few more minutes? Absolutely, absolutely. Perfect. That segment, by the way, brought to you by Lone Star Beer, the national beer of Texas, and Rudy's True Texas-style barbecue, where you can stop in after the hunt for breakfast, lunch, or dinner. Rudy's True Texas-style barbecue. Y'all don't go anywhere. We will continue the conversation with backcountry hunters and anglers CEO Lan Tawney after the break right here on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Hey y'all, Cable here for my good friends over at Outlaw Outfitters. This veteran-owned and operated outfit will put you on the ducks, to say the least. I've been hunting with them for, gosh, four or five years now. They also do uh, deer 
hog and turkey as well. They have over 15,000 acres they hunt in Collin, Grayson, and Fannin counties. Whether you want to do a turnkey, you know, one morning waterfowl hunt or a complete weekend package with authentic Cajun cooking and lodging, it's all right there within an hour of the Metroplex and you can find them at huntoutlaw.com. In the market for a compact track loader, then check out the Bobcat Advantage, where Bobcat track loaders squared off against other brands in a variety of tests and challenges. Whether you're looking for performance advantages, uptime protection, or quality design, Bobcat compact track loaders are the best-built machines in the industry. But don't take our word for it. Watch the videos at BobcatAdvantage.com or see Bobcat machines in person at Bobcat of Dallas and Louisville, Fort Worth, Cedar Hill, Longview, and now McKinney. Visit BobcatOfDallas.com or call 469-586-0000. Hey, y'all. Chris Letzinger, online sales manager at Cinnamon Creek Ranch here, reminding you we're not your typical archery club. We're a one-of-a-kind archery facility with indoor and outdoor ranges, full pro shop, and six different 3D courses. Cinnamon Creek was designed by hunters for hunters. Located in Roanoke, Texas, we have over 200 3D targets to hone your archery skills. Call 817-439-8998 or visit us at cinnamoncreekranch.com to visit our new online store. That's cinnamoncreekranch.com. But too much water run under that old bridge. There's too many rivers between. Too Many Rivers, a classic there from Brenda Lee, bringing us back on the Lone Star Outdoor Show, powered by our good friends over at Dallas Safari Club. Thanks to our presenting sponsors, Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Polaris. I'm your host, Cable Smith, and we are talking all things public land and public land hunting, access, angling, uh, all the issues surrounding what I consider to be our, our nation's greatest treasure. And we're doing that with Backcountry Hunters and Anglers CEO, Land Tawny. But before we jump back into it with Land, this segment of the show is brought to you by Rustic Reminders Taxidermy in Marion and San Antonio, Texas. That's right, two locations to better serve you. Josh and Becky Gunther have been handling all my trophy mounts for the past seven years. Whether it's a black bear, a trout, whitetail, turkey, exotic, you name it. If it's going on my wall, they're taking care of it. They offer incredible work, fast turnaround time, and they answer the phone when you call. Huh, that's mind-blowing for a taxidermist, right? Well, Josh and Becky are not the norm. They'll take care of you just like they take care of me, and you can find them at gr8mounts.com. That's gr8mounts.com. All right, uh, well, Land was nice enough to stick around through the break. Uh, we certainly appreciate that. He's the CEO and president of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, one of my favorite conservation organizations. And uh, they're not, well, indirectly they conserve the wildlife, but BHA is more concerned with conserving our land, our public land that you and I own. Uh, and so, Land, let's uh, let's go ahead and talk about the status of that monument review that came out, oh, it was earlier this summer, uh, kind of you know, caused everyone to raise an eyebrow as far as the hunting community is concerned. What's the latest on Secretary Zinke's review of these millions and millions of acres of national monuments? And then the leaked report that came out uh, was kind of disheartening as well. <laughs> it's kind of like, I mean, I, so I can like do my crystal ball for you, not cable. Um, I'm not going to do that, but what I'll tell you kind of is where we are. Sure. Um, I'm not going to tell you what I think is going to happen necessarily, but I'll tell you where we are. So, 
the secretary gives his recommendations to the president. Um, that memo got leaked a week and a half ago. Um, that had some pretty troubling things in it, you know, and suggestions about reducing, uh, you know, the borders of, of, of a handful of monuments, um, reducing, you know, how some of them are managed, um, and then really, quite honestly, some falsehoods. Um, there was one in there, you know, that mentioned the Oregon Mountains Desert Peaks there in New Mexico, which I've actually hunted quail in, and it talks about how, you know, hunting access has been severely restricted there. Well, like no road has been closed you know, since the monument designation. Um, and, you know, we had plenty of, uh, of quail to go chase around. And so I just, that was not truthful. And, and so I think there was not many details really within this, uh, um, within this leaked document. And so what happens now is that, you know, it's up to the president to decide what they want to do. And, um, you know, if that's going to be presidential action, you know, like what they, let's say they go after Bears Ears, one of the newest, you know, established monuments, um, is that, like, like how, do, if they do that presidentially, it's kind of unprecedented, and there's a legal kind of ramifications that start from that. They definitely will be sued, not by us, but somebody else, um, about that process. So that starts that piece. Um, they could kick it down to Congress, kind of like what they did with the Dreamers, you know, like he said, um, you know, this is up to Congress to solve. And so they could kick, you know, this process down to Congress. And quite honestly, I think if that happens, like nothing happens, our Congress right now is, you know, having, um, difficult passing anything. And, and so I think if it does go to the Congress, I think there's opportunities to weigh in there. Um, and then the third kind of option is they do nothing. And I don't think that's what's going to happen. I think they're going to do something. Mm-hmm. Um, but now, and so everybody's, you know, it's like, that 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 crystal ball and you know oh it's going to happen this weekend because it's a three-day weekend you know like before labor day and you know that all bad news comes out on a friday right oh it didn't happen then you know and like it's like it's like i don't know when it's going to happen i i do think something is going to happen there and i guess the last option um, that i haven't said already is that they can either do it all at once like as a as a, if it's a presidential action where they take all the monuments and say this is what we're going to you know this is what we're going to do with them or they could string them out and do them one at a time. And um, again, I can't really surmise, you know, how they're going to do it. I will say that there's, you know, some pretty big P politics at play here where you have Senator Hatch from Utah is super important. He's the chairman of the finance committee and any kind of, you know, legislative uh, things that the, that the administration and Trump, you know, talking about uh like tax incentive reform or tax reform mm-hmm. that has to go through that committee and so he needs uh mr hatch on his side and then mr hatch happens to be from utah where two of these monuments that are being reviewed come from and so you know are they holding that over his head saying do this first or is it hey if we do this will you do this for us and right. so i think that's some of these bigger p politics that are at play but again there are they i mean are they they're hiding behind the muse though that, that they didn't want to pay to fund these these par- parks and monuments and, but essentially the goal is just to turn them over to the private sector and let them drill on them is, is that i mean am i missing something yeah here? i mean i i mean i think what like i mean they have i mean like like these you know these are these national monuments were established you know through years and years of people wanting to protect these places and and so like then you know they're designated as monuments and so that means you're withdrawing basically the opportunity to extract this kind of, of work. Now, like, you know, a lot of people have said that grazing is not allowed anymore on national monuments. Well, I'll tell you, 
that Oregon Mountains Desert Peaks. Like I saw cows when I was down there on the monument. There was evidence of grazing there big time. There's the Upper Missouri Breaks National Monument here in Montana. Uh-huh. Grazing is still out there. And so now it's kind of a red herring to me. But what they're really taking away is that opportunity to to really defile these treasured landscapes through like kind of unfettered oil and gas and gold and uh, or hard rock minerals and, and, and coal mm-hmm. extraction. And so, um, you know, like, again, we're not making any more of these places. And so like the idea of trying to undo, you know, the gist, I mean, there's been rumors that they're going to, you know, take uh, bears ears from 1.3 million down to like 300,000 acres. Well, that's a million acres that you're taking protection away from. And, and so, you know, that's, that's, <laughs> not only flies in the face of like Theodore Roosevelt's legacy, but really on the ground kind of what that means for wildlife habitat. And so I think that that's really what this is. is it's, a, it's a giveaway to industry and it's short-sighted. You know, you look at, you look at this $887 billion um, contribution to the economy every year by the outdoor industry, which includes hunters and anglers, but also includes hikers and birders and you know mountain bikers. Like, that is based on public lands and it's based on not like industrial landscapes. That's based on, you know, like these, these places that people actually want to go. It's like Mm. access to them and then the fish and wildlife habitat once you get there. And, you know, you start to chink away at that, at that kind of um, public estate and that economy that is sustainable and can be grown will go away and it's really for a short-term gain by a small small amount of people and that to me is you know the tragedy and you know i talked to the secretary about this personally is that if they want to think about trying to make more money on these public lands then they look at like the 1872 mine law which is absolutely crazy that we still have that law um ruling what how hard rock minerals so gold silver um, platinum get taken out of our public lands. They pay zero royalties, and a lot of times these are like foreign-owned companies. And these foreign-owned companies, you know, Canada, uh, Africa, wherever they're from, Australia, they're taking these minerals off of U.S. lands, the American people's lands, the taxpayers' lands, and they don't have to pay any royalties on them. Which just to that me just is absolutely and no, it's ridiculous. And so it's like, if you want to try to like make more money. Why don't you start with that stuff where we're getting raped in village right now versus like trying to take away protection so you can go take more of it without mm-hmm. us getting any money for it. So um, I think, you know, and I, I think the secretary is actually in agreement there. and um, I hope that uh, that is, you know, maybe something that we can address as we go forward. Well, so, okay. To me, it seems like he's offered this 120 day grace period of, you know, maybe we're going to try to provide more public access. And yep. meanwhile, he's doing something that's totally the exact opposite. So I'm trying to, I'm trying to get a read on, on secretary Zinke and, and what he stands for. And, uh, I'll get, you know, there's mixed, mixed signals that are being sent out, uh, from the secretary's office. I think, you know, and I think you're exactly right. And you're reading this, um, <laughs> correctly, at least the same way I am is that, Hey, don't look what we're doing over here. Cause like we have this shiny object called access over here and, you know, you and I could have access to, you know, an industrial wasteland landscape or a parking lot, but is that really a place we want to go? And I'd say absolutely not. And so I think, you know, it's up to, you know, this is why I think this conversation is so important and that we get information out is that, you know, I think like, just like we treated the secretary when he was the congressman and that we treat, you know, all kind of elected officials 
is that when he does good things, we will applaud. And when he does things that, uh, that we don't agree with, we're going to hold him accountable. Right. And, you know, this, this idea that you know, he, you know, he continues to talk about how he's a Theodore Roosevelt guy. Well, Theodore Roosevelt, you know, he was amazing, right? Like our, our greatest conservation president ever, quite frankly, probably like, the, like, and there's a lot of people that were involved in our conservation ethic that is kind of, you know, a part of our American fabric now, but he is like the godfather of it. Absolutely. Like to like invoke his name like that. Those are huge boots to fill. Right. I mean, those are. And so like, you cannot like say, Oh, we're going to do this access thing over here and then mess around with like, this conservation legacy over here. Like I, this don't work. And so I think holding him accountable, uh, publicly and privately is very important as we move forward. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I couldn't agree more uh, on that front. Uh, so, and that's why I wanted to have you on is, a, you know, have an authority on and, and say, Hey, this is what's going on. Uh, Cause we are getting these mixed signals. Um, yep. So, okay. Well, what, uh, if you could ask him one question, cause I think I'm going to have him on uh, basically right after you're on. Um, and, you're going to have the secretary on. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, good for you. Good so, for you. I figured I'd, uh, if there's one question that Land would ask, what should I ask Secretary Zinke in our conversation that, uh, you know, I think our listeners need to be privy to his answer? Yeah, it's a great opportunity, by the way. Um, I think, you know, I would ask him how he feels like he's carrying on Theodore Roosevelt's legacy. How does he equate, you know, like this access issue versus like this habitat issue? Now, one that we haven't talked about today, you know, there's a, a proposed gold mine outside Yellowstone Park, and he's been very staunch on saying that's not a place um, where we need to, you know, have development. And so, you know, again, like, okay, you call yourself, you say you're a Theodore Roosevelt or Teddy Roosevelt, he's a Teddy Roosevelt guy. How do you make that work with some of these things that you're proposing, you know, whether that's, you know, national monuments, Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, uh, sage grouse, uh, like kind of like redoing sage grouse plans that have been worked on collaboratively that you yeah. know western governors are totally opposed to any kind of changes to like how is he carrying on that legacy when he's doing those things and i think you know i think that's a really important question to ask him and um, Fair question. you know i'd love yeah. yeah and it's a you know it's, it's not like it's a you know it's not like you're trying to get him in a gotcha moment these are things that are happening it's just you know like tell me how you kind of reconcile that yeah yeah well, and that's why I wanted to get him on to say, hey, you know, I, I applaud you for, for saying you're going to provide more access. Now, how are you going to do it? Yep. So, yep. Cool. Well, right on, man. Well, hey, uh, if you want to, uh, you know, plug your podcast and then obviously uh, encourage folks to become a member of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. Yeah, we have a new podcast been out for like two months called uh, the podcast and blast brought to you by backcountry hunters and anglers. Uh, we've been uh, pretty excited about, I, mean, I think we just hit a hundred thousand downloads. And so we're getting that out in the airwaves and um, you can check us out there. You know, I love these forums because they're conversations versus sound bites. Yeah. Um, and then our website is just backcountryhunters.org. Um, and, you know, you can find out a ton of information about what we're doing there. Well, hey, Lane, we appreciate all you do, and uh, hope you have a great hunting season. Uh, spend as much time in the backcountry as you can. I know you will, and I will try to do the same. Yeah, man, and, uh, like, enjoy that hunt, dude. Like, <laughs> I think you're looking at it in a great way that, you know, you're getting to go on, a, if nothing else, an awesome camping trip, and then, you know, hopefully be able to find yourself a mule deer as well. Well, I appreciate it, man. All right, we'll talk soon. Okay, take care. All right, thank you.
There he goes, Land Tawny of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. Uh, certainly always a treat visiting with Land about our public lands, something I'm extremely passionate about. Uh, that segment brought to you by Lone Star Ag Credit. Let them help you finance your piece of Texas today. I you know, obviously love our public lands, but who doesn't want to own their own slice of Texas as well? They've been doing it for over 100 years. So let Lone Star Ag Credit help you finance your piece of Texas by going to LoneStarAgCredit.com. All right, uh, let's take a break. Up next, we'll check in with the United States Secretary of the Interior himself. Ryan Zinke drops in right here on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Tomorrow we can drive around this town Let the cops chase us around The past is gone but something might be Hey, y'all, Cable here for Sendero Seed Company. If you want to keep a happy and healthy whitetail herd, then you need to check out Sendero Seed Company. They've got anything and everything you need, including the Dr. Deer-backed Buck Forage Oats. You can find them at SenderoSeed.com or call Rob Hughes at one 877 610 seed today. Sendero Seed Company for all your planting needs. Do you have a hog problem at your ranch or deer lease? We have the solution. The System Hog Trap comes in two sizes, 17-foot and 30-foot diameter traps. After you trap the hogs, take the top section off the trap and use it for another feeder site to keep the hogs away from the feeder. The System is both a trap and a deer food plot fence. That way you don't waste your money on just a hog trap. Call 940-391-3669 or visit www.goinfencing.com. That's goinfencing.com. Hey, North Texas sports fans, this is Brian Spagnola, General Manager of Texas Motorcars in Addison. My family's been in the car business for over 50 years, and I want to show you the difference in buying from a family-owned and operated business. TexasMotorcars.com is an awesome website that lets you do virtually all of your shopping online. We have a professional photographer that takes amazing photos, and we give you all the information that you'll need up front. You can even find out how much we will give you for your trade-in before you ever come in. I take pride in the fact you can come in, choose a car, and be out in less than an hour. We have financing rates starting at 1.79% on pre-owned vehicles and can help almost anybody. Please do yourself a favor. If you're in the market for a pre-owned vehicle of any kind, give us a shot. Let me show you how easy buying a vehicle should be. Visit TexasMotorCars.com or come visit our 20,000-square-foot indoor showroom in Addison. Again, visit TexasMotorCars.com or call us at 1-888-9-TX-MOTORS. Folks said that I would change my mind. I'd straighten up and do just fine. Ah, but I still love rock and roll. I keep on rolling with the flow. One of my all-time favorites there from Charlie Rich, rolling with the flow, bringing us back here on the Lone Star Outdoor Show, powered by Dallas Safari Club. Thanks to our presenting sponsors, Lone Star Beer and Hoff, powered Polaris Cable Smith here with you. Thank you for tuning in today as we are all set to continue the all-important public land discussion. And we'll do that with United States Secretary of the Interior, Ryan Zinke, momentarily. But first, 
This segment of the show is proudly brought to you by Dallas Safari Club, the worldwide leader in big game conservation. To get plugged in with this great group of folks who are passionate about hunters' rights, education, and conservation, check us out at biggame.org. All right. Uh, well, without further ado, let's bring him on right now. He's been in the headlines off and on since his appointment by President Trump, which doesn't really seem that odd, to be honest with you. It's my pleasure to welcome United States Secretary of the Interior, Ryan Zinke. Thank you for being here. Always great to be with you. Absolutely. Uh, first of all, let's get to know you uh, a little bit better. So tell us, you know, what are your favorite things to hunt and where? You know, any type of hunting is I just enjoy. And what I enjoy about it is the legacy. Uh, my sons and I go out. My father, I hunted with my father, hunted with my grandfather. And really it's about a tradition of, of getting out, uh, respecting the land, and also the, the value of conservation. Mm-hmm. And uh, and just making sure that hunting is available to uh, the average person going out. Uh, and what I see as the secretary, oftentimes, is you know when hunting becomes an elite sport, when roads are closed, access is closed. You know that means the experience that I had growing up with my grandfather and my father and taking the sons out, you know, is less likely to occur. Mm-hmm. Well, so let me ask you this: Would you say in those experiences you're more of a like a, a deer hunter or a, a grouse hunter, bird hunter? I would say there's very few things that are better than than hunting whitetail. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, elk is great meat in the fridge. I love I, I love the bugle. I love the you know elk are generally a little more difficult. Oh yeah. Uh, but I just love and I very cold fall day uh, to go out and and uh track and 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 hunt whitetail they're just beautiful animals and and uh i i probably would would uh look at that above all else okay yeah well you mentioned elk i was in new mexico this past weekend uh public land mule deer hunting but man the elk were fired up i saw i wish i had an elk tag because i was about 40 feet from a a giant uh seven by seven so It's, but you know, it's the experience around it. But you know, again, I I, I rarely hunt alone. Uh-huh. I love to hunt with my my kids or or friends and go out. And it's the whole experience around, you know, hunting. You know, going out and get bologna and cheese sandwiches and mm-hmm. bring it in. A, you know, make the whole the whole loaf of bread with with it and go out and a little cheese and sit there and and look at the beauty of the land and it's just. Uh, I don't think there's anything quite like hunting. Right. Well, uh, you spent time in the backcountry, you know, on our public lands that so many sportsmen and women hold so dear. And you're a self-described Teddy Roosevelt guy. So you understand the value that these millions of acres of forests, deserts, monuments, streams, and rivers have for outdoor enthusiasts. And and two weeks ago, I was thrilled to get a, a press release from your office regarding the expansion of access to federal lands. Um, so... Talk a little bit about Secretarial Order 3356. You know, what does it entail, and what about it should excite sportsmen and women? Well, uh, let's go to the wilderness. You know, uh, Interior has about 20% of the nation's territory, and the Wilderness Act, which, you know, uh, I, if you're a history buff, you know, Roosevelt, 
uh, he went out to Yosemite. He did a, a fine ride with one of our greatest naturalists named John Muir. But Roosevelt hired a gentleman by, by the name of Gifford Pinchot. And Pinchot really was the base of the American conservation ethic, which means our public lands are for the benefit and enjoyment of the people and are managed by best science and best practices. And when the Wilderness Act uh, came about, it was a grand bargain uh, between the, the preservationists, the naturalists, between the hunters and fishermen, and between the cattlemen that the Wilderness Act you could graze on, that you could hunt and fish. And what we've seen is the reduced access oftentimes has made it more difficult for hunters. I mean, when you can't clear a trail and you have to use a buck saw, uh, when some places grazing has been reduced or, or limited, and even, you know, again, access to hunters and fishermen using the public land. So we're looking at, you know, reshaping uh, access to making sure the public does have access and making sure we honor the intent of the laws. In some cases, monuments have prevented, uh, prohibited hunting, uh, closed roads. Uh, and you look at the numbers last year in the report of hunting. Hunting's down. Mm -hmm. uh, fishing is up. Uh, nature viewing is up. But hunting is down. And part of that is lack of access. You know, I grew up in Montana, and, you know, time and time again, roads were closed by either the Park Service or the, the U.S. Uh, Forest Service or BLM, and that affects, you know, access. Us, you know, in hunting, especially with the Forest Service, uh, Sonny Purdue and I, uh, we talk often. A uh, great governor, a former governor from Georgia, clearly understands the roles and missions of the Forest Service. But it's about making sure that that hunting and that legacy is available to the public. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, yeah. So we don't like to see increased access. I, I think folks don't want to see you know roads going through these pristine areas, though. Um, you know, it's access to. Um, we were talking with Land Tony from Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, and you know, as opposed to access through. Which would be like you know a road going through the um, Pecos wilderness. Well, you know, and that's why you have wilderness. Yeah. Uh, but you know what? What I disagree with backcountry's uh, hunters and anglers are is the idea that it should be exclusive, mm -hmm. meaning that you the only way you can get in there is is have a uh, you know a an outfitter or that your own horses that, or whatever or on horses and and that makes it no, enormously expensive you know for the average uh, citizen so you can clear trails you should be able to uh use a wheel a game cart you know those type of things uh, i think are absolutely appropriate mm -hmm. uh, but what i uh, what i disagree with is making making it exclusive where all our public land should be handled as wilderness uh, and and not as as managed lands by science. And look at our wilderness about the fires. I mean, when when the, these catastrophic fires you know appear uh, year after year after year, and the amount of dead and dying timber in the woods, um, there's a place for wilderness absolutely. But much of our land uh, should be better managed. And that means by better management, that means protecting habitat. And making sure that that again, 
that the conservation measures are followed, which produce you know a, a greater volume and a greater bounty of of wildlife. Mm-hmm. There's no doubt about it. And, and you, you look at Utah on some of the areas there, the conservation efforts have gotten in there, removed some of the the cedar, removed some of the of uh, the brush to allow uh, you know grasses to grow. Uh, which in, in, in you know in turn produce more opportunity for for game, and the the game stocks you know are carefully controlled. But this is all about conservation and using best science and practices. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I was in a uh, an aspen burn this past weekend, and uh, I don't know. Sometimes it, it takes a fire to clear out some of that stuff. Uh, it's kind of the natural order of things. Yeah, um, and I'm a huge advocate of prescribed burns. Uh, but these catastrophic burns that go through millions of acres yeah. uh, is problematic. But you can, you know, a management of a forest is prescribed burns, uh, mechanical extraction, uh, best science and, and principles, and also access because, you know, some of these roads in there that have been taken away and allowed to, to taken out of service are no longer maintained. Uh, if you do get a fire strike, it's hard to get access in. Mm-hmm. And if you don't, if you don't go back in after a fire and remove the dead and dying trees, uh, then it's very dangerous for fire crews to get in there. We've had a, a loss of life this year on what's called a widowmaker, you know, standing timber that is that is dead uh, in in a fire. It's really difficult uh, and dangerous for a fire crew uh, to fight a fire in and around these stands of mm-hmm. dead dead trees. Oh yeah, I was in uh, Northwest Colorado two weeks ago um, elk hunting and. We were right on the Wyoming border, and they were literally on the plane. I flew up there, and uh, we had firefighters from all over the country that were going to Wyoming, and also Montana. Uh, they had four or five fires that were just, you know, had been going on for a week. And so we could see the smoke. Uh, you know, it was kind of affecting the view for us up there in Colorado. Well, you know, and, and uh, folks that live, you know, in the West, uh, in the summer, you know, that's when you should be on the river, you should be floating, you should be hiking, camping. Uh, you shouldn't be evacuating your home and having to leave the state because the air quality is so diminished and the habitat's destroyed. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I'm an advocate of getting in there, cleaning up the woods, and restoring the health to the forest. And that's part of being a good steward, but we've we've let the forest go with this idea that the only way to manage is let nature take its course, and that has a consequence. Mm-hmm. And we've seen the consequence, you know, these last few summers. Fire season is longer, temperatures are hotter, but a lot of it is just the amount of fuel that's in that's in the woods, and that has a has a consequence when. Uh, these these huge catastrophic forest fires that are uncontrolled, you know, burn habitat and and cause havoc. Yeah, well, and I think we've also, you know, on the wildlife side of things, we've seen you can't just let nature take its course, especially with the wolf issue. I mean, uh, if people weren't trying to limit the wolf, you know, if we didn't have wolf hunts and Idaho fishing game didn't shoot them out of helicopters, I mean, our elk herds would be decimated. So well, and there's not an elk herd that doesn't have a wolf pack attached to it. Right, and right. so it is management. And you, you see the grizzly bear population continue to rise. And, it's, and that's a state issue, uh, whether you can hunt or not a grizzly bear. It's our issue to, to make a determination whether that species is should be off the endangered species list or not. Mm-hmm. 
and whether the the stocks are are you know, no longer need to be need to have that level of protection. And to right. me, when 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 a species has been recovered, then that's shift focus on and the resources on species that we need to look at because mm-hmm. there's a lot of species that are challenged in there that that uh, we need to focus on. But when the wolf or the grizzly bear or or some of these species have recovered, let's have an honest discussion uh, about it and then shift the resources uh, to species that that need some help. Absolutely. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Um, Well, okay. Just uh, going back to, you know, the fact that you are a Teddy Roosevelt conservation guy, you you understand that legacy of conservation uh, in your life and obviously in your professional career. I did want to ask you, though, real quick, just about the leaked uh, interior report. I'm just kind of curious as to, and we had this review on our monuments and stuff. I mean, it's common knowledge. Every sportsman's heard about that. Uh, what is the status of that situation? And, and I think folks are a little bit concerned just, you know, because these lands are federal lands, and, and if they were well, ever reverted back yeah. to the private sector, you know. Well, and then this is where the fake news, mm-hmm. and, I, and, I, and I'll, call, I'll call out, you know, backcountry hunters and anglers and this fake news. Uh, the monuments are federal land before, they're federal land afterwards and in between. Um, and the Antiquities Act, it's a very short act. Then there's three things. You have to have a mon- you have to have a an object to protect, either cultural or historic or scientific. And it has to be on federal land. So you can't put a monument on private land. It has to be federal. And lastly, smallest area compatible with protection of the object. And on my review, what I what I found is that some of the some of the monuments we're talking the hundred thousand acres and above, these huge monuments. And what I found is that some of the monuments were put in place to prevent rather than protect. And some of the monuments had forty percent of private land. That clearly is outside the scope of the law. And some of the objects of protecting, let me give you an example, a World War II bombing crater that's only visible by Google Earth. And when you look at it, it looks like, and this was t- said to me with a straight face, it looks like a battleship. Hmm. Now, I thought it looked like Jesus, but I can tell you that, that when I, from a former SEAL perspective, when I'm looking at a, a World War II bombing range, I said, you know what, it probably has unexploded ordnance in there, and it probably needs to be raked. But things like that are an abuse of power, and I am not an advocate for selling or transferring public land. I am an advocate in making sure that we have access, so when roads are arbitrarily closed, when hunting access and hunting rights are taken away, in the case of some monuments, removed hunting and fishing, and in case of... of you know, these procedures that, in some cases, a monument prevented even cross-country ski trails from being groomed. Hmm. I mean, that is, to me, there there's a line, and, and no president should have the authority to arbitrarily remove the public from their lands uh, when it's not in protection of an object. So the review, I think the president did the right thing. He called for a review uh, we have hundreds of monuments, and over the course of time, monuments have been extraordinarily helpful and beneficial, protecting the treasures of our lands. Uh, but when you're talking about 1.5 million acres, 
And, you know, the poster child is probably bear's ears. Mm -hmm. And what a lot of folks don't realize is that bear's ear is 1.5 million acres, one and a half times the size of Glacier Park. Within bear's ears is an entire wilderness, a, an entire national forest, a, a wilderness study area, a monument that was, that was earlier designated by Teddy Roosevelt, oddly enough. Hmm. So when you put a monument over the top of a wilderness, uh, in fact, a wilderness is held at a higher standard of management, and and the recommendations there's not one square inch of land that will be removed from federal control. But some of the lands, in my judgment, are better to be restored to a wilderness or restored to a national forest, or have Congress take a look at at designations other than a monument, for instance, a conservation area or national recreation area, but the authorities under the Antiquities Act to a president uh, are clear, they're well-defined, and, and in, in some cases, I, I think they were, they were abused. Okay, okay. Well, I, th I think that was a thorough answer, uh, so we definitely appreciate that. Um, <clears throat> let me ask you one last thing, as you've been uh, very generous with your time. Uh, I do understand, you know, as far as like these mining and uh, uh, folks, uh, companies that come in, sometimes I don't even think they're American, uh, come in and they'll mine or they'll frack or they'll do this or that and basically extract resources from our public lands and they don't have any type of royalty fee that they have to pay to the government. It seems like that might be a, a good way for us to start pumping, you know, more funds into these uh, federal lands that we all hold so dear. Absolutely. And we have, I initiated, one of my first actions as secretary was to initiate a royalty review, a committee, uh -huh. because you are absolutely right. If you're going to do any commercial enterprise on public lands, the number one stakeholder is us, the public. And I want to make sure that, number one, that there's good value. Number two, that there's a reclamation plan uh, that we hold these, these industries accountable. Um, but you talk about the, our park system, we're $11.5 billion behind in maintenance repair. But if you go back to 2008, mm -hmm. is the Department of Interior oh, was the number one two revenue, re revenue producer uh, right behind the IRS. In just offshore oil and gas, we made about $18 billion a year in 2008. Wow. Now, it was a big, it was a banner year. But last year, we made 2.6. And there's a consequence of taking 94% of our offshore lands unavailable. And even in the National Petroleum Reserve, and it's called National Petroleum Reserve for a, for a, for a reason, when you make uh, the most productive areas unavailable, you know, what happens is you don't have revenue. And on scale, just what we lost a year, we would have made up our entire backlog in our parks, which we need. And we would have had billions of dollars to reinvest in places that we need. As you, as you know, it's, we have the wildlife refuges that, that need to be upgraded in some cases. We have visitor centers. We have roads. Uh, and we have conservation projects. You know, I'm facing you know, at least a half a billion dollars down in the Everglades mm -hmm. uh, because the river of grass has now become a you know, creek. Uh, and, and we need to restore the Everglades. And out west, 
in Idaho, there's a lot of areas that, you know, from these, uh, from the burns to restore our forests, that means go in there and get the dead and dying timber out and replant a diversity of, of trees and restore uh, their watersheds. Uh, that's an important uh, critical job. And having the revenue stream to do that, I think, is equally important. And you can do it right. I mean, we, we want to hold these guys absolutely accountable. But incentivize emerging technology, incentivize better techniques rather than being punitive. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, right on. Well, hey, Secretary, it has been uh, a treat getting to visit with you today, getting to know you a little bit better. Uh, thank you for what you're doing, overseeing uh, these these public lands that, like I said, myself and and all of our listeners and 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 you also. I mean that's the that's the the good thing, uh, is we have someone I think that's uh, in our corner, and so we certainly appreciate that. Well, you know, and I've always said there's two things our government should fund absolutely. It's our military and our public lands, uh, because our public lands are the treasure, and we need to defend them as well as we need to defend our country. But, uh, you know, the love of the public lands, and again, going back to making sure the public is the number one customer, that means the public should have access. Uh, we should make sure that hunting and fishing, you know, is, is protected and, and promoted. And then, you know, making sure, too, we look at wildlife corridors and watersheds and the systems to make sure that our public lands uh, in perpetuity are what we believe they should be. Yes, sir. Well, hey, I hope you have a chance to hit the whitetail woods this season. <laughs> I am going to. I'm going to. I'm going to make a point. I look forward to it. I'll, I'll, I'll see see you out there on the on the the great great hunt. All right. Well, take care, Secretary. Thank you. You're very welcome. All right. So there you have it, <laughs> United States Secretary of the Interior Ryan Zinke. Um, certainly enjoyed getting his thoughts on all things public land. Obviously, uh, some discrepancy between his thoughts and backcountry hunters and anglers' stance. Uh, so, I don't know, let you guys and gals kind of come to your own conclusions there. Uh, but there's no doubt in my mind backcountry hunters and anglers have our best interests at heart. And while I think that Secretary Zinke is a great appointment, you know, the end of the day he's still a politician and so sometimes that means uh maybe he has to do something he, he doesn't want to do or isn't fully on board with and it sucks but you know that's the way politics go so they say uh but either way a great discussion with both uh lantani and secretary zinke we appreciate their time and i certainly enjoyed sharing my backcountry uh, mule deer experience with you guys and gals this morning as well so hopefully y'all enjoyed hearing me talk about freezing my ass off uh, unfortunately we are out of time for today my least favorite part of every week gotta go gotta get out of here thanks to all of our sponsors for making this show possible thanks to you the listener for being a part of DSC's Lone Star Outdoor Show. Until next time, I'm Cable Smith saying, y'all have a great week in the outdoors. The mountains win again.